And repentance breaks down, interestingly, to two things. Our part and God's part. Repentance is a two-part thing. There's what we do to repent, which is humanly possible. And then there's what God does to work repentance in us, which is not humanly possible, which only comes about by his spirit and by his work. Anyone that was here last week, do you remember what the point was? What is our part in repentance? What is our part in repentance? Just do it. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Look, there's a whole bunch of things in your life that if you just chose today to change what you do, you could start changing what you do. It's really simple. He didn't ask you to walk on water or do something impossible. He just said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So as, hey, by the way, this is good. We did a test last week. At the end of the service, we waited on the Lord to hear the Lord communicate to us about something that he was calling us to just change, something practical that he was calling us to change. How many of you heard him say something to you? A whole bunch of people did. Did you go out and do it? Did you go out and do what he said to do? Okay, you didn't repent. That wasn't repentance. The whole point of last week was repentance isn't about how you feel. It isn't about feeling bad about your sin. It isn't about mustering up some remorse, you know, screwing up some self-hate so you can really have a good repentance time. That's not repenting. Repenting is when you go out and you do something different. You change your mind and you change your actions. Are you with me? I asked a friend of mine after church on Sunday, uh, did the Lord speak to you? And this person said yes. And I said, what did he say? And this person said, um, when I go to parties, only have one glass of wine. And um, I'm, I'm to watch how I am around non-Christians when I'm in a party setting. And there was something else that my friend said. You know what? That was the Lord. That kind of practical stuff. Remember my story when I first became a Christian? How do you want me to start changing and becoming a, a better person and a Christian? And he said, stop taking the biggest piece of pizza. Stop taking the biggest piece first and stop always taking the last piece, Mark. That's God. All these little practical things. He asks you to do what you know you can do. And I said to my friend, did you do it? Are you going to do it at the party we're having? Are you just going to have one glass of wine? Because if you, if, you, if you cheat on what he said, it's not repentance, okay? Now, he'll forgive you and you get to start over every single time. You get to start fresh every single time. Thankfully, he has an infinite capacity for patience and forgiveness. But don't kid yourself. It's not repentance unless you change. And the kinds of things he asks you to do, folks, are all the things that are possible to do. He won't ask you to do anything that is not possible for you to do. And some of the things you're thinking are impossible for you to do, they might be, but if you call out for his help, he will empower your will with his will. He will empower your character with his character and he will give you the provision to do the thing he's told you to do every command of god also contains a promise every command of god to change includes the power to change he never gives you a command without also giving you the provision that would be completely unfair so when he tells you something hard to do you're thinking man that's like almost impossible well maybe it is humanly impossible but if you call out to him for the strength and the ability to do it and then you go and risk in obedience you will find it's there when you need it you with me 
That was the human side. Now we're going to look at the God side. Because there's a part of, for, uh, of repentance which we do, but then there's a part, a very deep, deep work that only he can do. And listen, I said this to you last Sunday. If you attempt to do this work within your own self, you will get in deep trouble. This is not something you should attempt to muster up in yourself. If, you, if you're succeeding in mustering this up in yourself, it's a soulish repentance. It's human potential doing the repentance, and it isn't real repentance at all. I want to start with a story. I'm going to read you something from a book, which was uh, this man's experience back in the 70s. Anybody here heard of Chuck Colson? It's great. All the old people's hands go up. All right. All right. All you, all you political science, civics, young people, did they teach you anything about something called Watergate? Did they teach you about Watergate? All right. Richard Nixon was the president. He was looking at a sure thing, uh, repeat four years. The re- election was in the bag. He was way ahead in the polls. <laughs> but not trusting that, He has a group of criminals who do his dirty work and go out and do illegal things. And one of the illegal things they set out to do was uh, go into, I think it was Daniel Ellsberg was the psychiatrist, break into a psychiatrist's office in the Watergate Hotel office complex and look at his files and get some dirty psychological garbage on one of Nixon's opponents to discredit him. Colson was the guy in charge of this team who thought up these dirty tricks and the illegal things and sent the guys out to do it and supervised any cover-up that needed to be done. So Chuck Colson was not a good person. He was corrupt at the highest level of corruption in this country. And after the election, um, he goes to have dinner with the president of Raytheon, the owner of Raytheon um, electronics. He's a very, very powerful and wealthy man. And this man and his wife are Christians. And at the dinner table with Chuck, they're witnessing to him and telling him about Jesus, which is like pouring water on a rock. Charles, Chuck Colson has a rock for a heart. He's as cynical and as rotten as they come. And they've been witnessing to him all evening. And now he goes out to his car And he starts to drive away. This is his experience. Outside in the darkness, the iron grip I'd kept on my emotions began to relax. Tears welled up in my eyes as I groped in the darkness for the right key to start my car. Angrily, I brushed them away and I started the engine. What kind of weakness is this? I said to nobody. The tears spilled over and suddenly I knew I had to go back into the house and pray with Tom. I turned off the motor. I got out of the car. As I did, the kitchen light went out. Then the light in the dining room. Through the hall window, I saw Tom stand aside as Gert, his wife, started up the stairs ahead of him. Now the hall was in darkness. It was too late. I stood for a moment staring at the darkened house. Only, white, only one light burning now in an upstairs bedroom. Why hadn't I prayed when he gave me the chance? 
I wanted to so badly. Now I was alone, really alone. As I drove out of Tom's driveway, the tears were flowing uncontrollably. There were no streetlights. There was no moonlight. The car headlights were flooding illumination before my eyes, but I was crying so hard. It was like trying to swim underwater. I pulled to the side of the road, not more than 100 yards from the entrance to Tom's driveway, the tires sinking into the soft mounds of pine needles. I remember hoping that Tom and Gert wouldn't hear my sobbing, the only sound other than the chirping of crickets penetrating the still of the night. With my face cupped in my hands, head leaning forward against the wheel, I forgot about machismo, about pretenses, about fears of being weak. As I did, I began to experience a wonderful feeling of being released. Then came the strange sensation that water was not only running down my cheeks, but surging through my whole body as well, cleansing and cooling as it went. They weren't tears of sadness or remorse, nor of joy, but somehow tears of relief. And then I prayed my first real prayer. God, I don't know how to find you, but I'm going to try. I'm not much the way I am now, but somehow I want to give myself to you. I didn't know how to say more, so I repeated over and over the words, take me. I had not accepted Christ. I still didn't know who he was. My mind told me it was important to find out first, to be sure that I knew what I was doing, that I meant it and that I would stay with it. Only that night, Something inside me was urging me to surrender to what or to whom I did not know. Isn't that interesting? See, he doesn't know what is happening to him. He doesn't have a religious context to put it into. Something is happening to him. Do you understand? Something is coming upon him and touching him at a very, very deep level. He's responding to something. He's not initiating anything. This was his act of repentance. Later, he put words to it. Later, he understood what it was. Later, he figured out all of the theology. This wasn't something that he initiated. This is something that he responded to. Have you ever had an experience like this? Do you know anyone that's ever had an experience like this? This experience is common to a lot of people who come to the Lord. Incidents like this are found throughout the biographies of Christians. This isn't a singular case. This is repentance, but it doesn't look like the kind of repentance that we looked at last week. The kind called for by John, which simply has to do with changing your mind and your actions. This is a repentance we can't do for ourselves. This is a repentance that happens to us. It looks much more like something is happening to us. 
It's something to which we respond. This is the kind of repentance which God initiates. And we have only one choice. Do we respond to it or not? But it's his work. What's happening at a deep level? What's going on when this happens? What's God doing within us? Jesus said something, and uh, it's so true on so many levels. He said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How do we usually exegete that verse? Come on, how do we usually exegete that verse? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How do we usually understand that? Hmm? The way I usually hear it is, you'll come to know Jesus and Jesus will set you free. What if there's something that you'll come to know that's true before you know he who is the truth? Do you understand what I'm saying? What if there's something else that you can know that will set you free before you know the one who sets you free? Just, I just had this thought. There's a Canadian poet. <laughs> Canadian poet? So, of course, you've not heard of him. He's a national treasure. Leonard Cohen. Anybody ever heard of Leonard Cohen? Poet and songwriter. He had a hit song um, called Suzanne back in the 60s. And the second verse goes like this. And this guy's Jewish, and he's not a Christian. So listen to these lyrics. And Jesus was a sailor when he walked upon the water, and he spent a long time watching from a lonely wooden tower, and just when he knew for certain only drowning men could find him, he said, all men will be sailors then until the sea shall free them. How does a Montreal Jew intellectual come up with that kind of theology. Could it be inspiration from the Holy Spirit? He spent a long time watching from a lonely wooden tower, and just when he knew for certain only drowning men can find him, he said, okay, all men will be sailors then until the sea shall free them. The only people that come to Jesus are drowning people. The only people that come to Jesus who are drowning are drowning people who know they're drowning. They're the ones that reach out, grab hold of him. I mean, he's on, the, he's on the boat and he's reaching out like this, but you have to take his hand and you have to grip it. You have to know you're in trouble and you have to know you're drowning and then he'll pull you up into the boat. There's something that often happens to us before we find Jesus and that's realizing that we're drowning. And that realizing that we're drowning is not that our life isn't going well. It's that we're sinners. It's that we have messed up our life. I have accumulated so many things I have done wrong in my life that if I spent the rest of my life trying to wipe them out with good deeds, I couldn't do it in the rest of my life. I need a savior. I am conscious of my sin. How does that consciousness of sin come? One day you just decide... It's time I became more conscious of my sin. I should become more conscious of my sin. That never works that way. 
Something happens within us. God begins to move upon us with our spirit. He begins to pull back the carefully constructed image that we have built about ourselves and all the lies and the self-justifications that we have put up around ourselves to protect our egos from the damage that it would be if we saw what we were really like. Do you understand that we live for illusion? We live to convince ourselves that we're really okay? We choose our friends according to who will tell us we're really okay. We don't hang around with the people that will tell us the truth. This is really the way we are. We build up this huge insulation to see to it we won't have to face the darkness of what's in our hearts. And we get so good at it, nobody can even tell us. I've seen plenty of marriages, okay, where she's trying to tell him and he's not getting it or vice versa. And they drag the partner into marriage counseling and with all of their hearts, they're hoping that the marriage counselor will say, you were a complete jerk. And then if the marriage counselor is honest, at some point in the process, the marriage counselor says, you were a real jerk, and that's when the counseling's over. Well, I don't like that counselor. I'll go find another counselor. I'm, well, really, it's how it works. It's... We don't even take truth from other people very well. And we insulate, it, we insulate ourselves from it most of the time. It takes God to reveal to you what you're really like. It takes a power beyond your ability to deceive yourself and pretend and construct your image. Somebody has to crack through your image and show you what you're really like so you can repent. <laughs> And if it doesn't happen before you are a Christian, it's going to happen after. At some point, you're going to see it. it look, listen, no, that's not true. You can, you can go through your Christian life and never see it. But if you're serious about God and you do want to know him and you do want to grow, at some point he's going to show you what you're like. And it will be, at the same time, the most horrible and wonderful experience of your life. It will be the most wonderful and horrible experience of your life. Horrible because it's the truth and you had no idea how really bad you were in the depth of your selfish little heart. Wonderful because, <laughs> because his only interest in showing you this is not to punish you, but to change you. And not to change you because he doesn't like you, but to change you because he does like you. He's only in it because he loves you. He's only doing what he has to do to set you free from yourself. So you can end up enjoying yourself more and feeling free like this guy felt. So that you can really enjoy his love. Look, you've got to understand this. And I'm way ahead of myself in this message. It's his mercy that leads to repentance. Romans. It's his mercy that leads to repentance. It's his mercy when he shows you your sin. Because one look, and it empowers the deepest repentance of your whole life that you could never do for yourself. And it's a hor horrible experience. 
I'll tell you a story. There are lots of time. First marriage, mine. Okay? First marriage, mine. Married to this girl who uh, was a homecoming queen and um, beautiful and intelligent and generous and all this stuff. But she had been sexually molested by her grandfather when she was a child. So our marriage was essentially sexless for 20 years. I lived as a celibate. Hard, hard. Partway through the marriage, four years into the marriage, I became a Christian And because the marriage, uh, I didn't know it at the time, okay, but we tell ourselves lies. I became a Christian, and it was a radical conversion, and I wholeheartedly, completely jumped into the kingdom of God, including changing my, not my occupation, but going to a different practice and everything else, all to free up time for the kingdom of God, or so I was telling myself. And I threw myself into the church with a passion that you've just probably never seen before. I ate, slept, and lived and breathed ministry. And I thought I was a committed, you know, radical, on-fire, model Christian. And I go on like this for 10, 15 years. And then the marriage, of course, didn't improve the whole time. And I can't remember what brought it up, but it was the middle of the night. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. And I woke up, and I'm lying in bed. And I'm thinking about the marriage, and I'm thinking about my life. And say something to myself like, well, you know, at least I have the church. At least I have the ministry. At least I'm pleasing you, Lord. At least I'm serving you. At least you and I are right. And the Lord says to me, why do you think you serve me so hard? Why do you think you serve the church so well? Well, it's easy. Because I love you. Because I'm radically committed. Because I'm an on-fire Christian. And he says to me, what gender is the church? Well, it's always feminine. You always refer to it in the feminine. It's your bride. And he said, maybe, maybe you've been giving yourself to the church because it's the only woman in your life you can give and receive love from and it isn't adultery. And the light comes on. And I see that's what I've been doing the whole time. I've been getting my sick, psychological, emptiness needs met with God's bride. That's really bad. He showed me that in the middle of the night, almost threw up in bed. It was awful. And I thought to myself, I am the sickest person I know. I am so screwed up. And I've been doing it like this for years. And I said to him, now here's the wonderful part. 
That revelation was really awful. I said, how can you stand to have somebody like me tampering with your bride? And he said, well, in my world, I heal you as you go. Guys, isn't that neat? He said, I've known you've been like this all along. And now you get to see it. And we're going to heal it. And you're going to get over this. I could never have gotten free of some things unless you showed me the truth. But what you have to understand when he shows you the truth is this. There is an equal sign in this equation. On this side it says, the depth of my sin. Then there's an equal sign. And then there's a sentence, how much God loves me. Do you understand? The depth of my sin equals how much God loves me. The revelation of the depth of my sin is actually a revelation of the depth of his love for me. The more he reveals to you the depth of your sin, if you understand the equal sign, you can flip it right across and go to this. This is incredible how much he loves me. Look at what he has forgiven. This is astounding. And every time this increases, so does this. That's the gift of repentance. He will never show you anything about yourself that he hasn't already seen, already forgiven, and already paid for. And it's no shock to him. And his heart is full of love and you'll survive every experience of seeing what you're really like if you'll just keep the equal sign in place. Now, there's theologies that live for this. You just got to know how rotten you are. You got to focus on how rotten you are. And you got to muster a lot of self-hate. And you could get a hold of some shame. That'll be good for you. That'll empower change. And then there's theologies over here that just tell you over and over and over and over again how much God loves you. And you know what? When we do that too much, because it is possible to make that the only message, it starts to mean nothing to you and it's a license to do whatever you want and you take his grace for granted and it just doesn't have any meaning anymore until he does one of these and shows you what you're really like. And all of a sudden, that forgiveness is the most valuable thing in the world to you. You can't focus on one or the other. It's an equation with an equal sign in the middle. And these two things have to be held in tension. So if he takes you to a revelation of your sin, you've got to understand in that moment, this is how much he loves me. And his love is as certain, his love is more certain than your sin. His love is more certain than your sin. Right? Repentance is always in the context of his love.
guy I used to know, John White, says there's two classes of Christians. First is those who all along have seen and felt the burden of their sins. There's some people that just, they've always seen it. It's a big theme. It looms large. They really need to get that equal sign, and they really need to get the, this is how much God loves me. Then there's another kind of Christian, those who have not seen their sins, so that when they are shown it, they are stunned and horrified by what they see. I think that's most of us. It comes as a great shock. But remember the equal sign. But I'd add a third kind of Christian. Those who've never had this deep work of the Holy Spirit, either as to their sins or as to his love. It's possible to be a Christian and never have the revelation of your sin, but at the same time, never have the revelation of the depth of his love. And just float along, paddling your surfboard on a dead calm sea with absolutely no waves at all, not knowing anything. It is possible to live that way. Do you want to live that way? So God will come along. You can do this. You can say, God, I want you to show me my sin. I'm open to it. I want you to show me my sin. And then you'll get all ready for this horrendous experience. And then it doesn't come. It just shows you a little bit. Just gives you something to work on. Then you trust him with that. You say, show me my sin. Now look, especially the, the, the place to ask this question, show me my sin, is in an area where it actually matters. Don't say, show me my bad driving habits. I'm open to that. I'm open to the illegal left-hand turn or whatever. Try, guys, try praying this one. Lord, show me how I'm failing my wife. That one costs. Girls, try this. Lord, show me how I'm not respecting my husband or honoring him. Right? Work relationships. Lord, show me how even though my boss is a complete idiot and I can do everything better than him, please show me how occasionally, once in a while, I might have a bad attitude towards him because he is in authority over me. I'm thinking of one for me. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> ask him, if, if you, if you want to do this, if you want to really know, ask him in an area where, actually, where it actually matters and where he would like to see some change so your marriage survives. Ask him those kind of questions. And then trust him that he's going to show you as much as you need to see and no more. As much as you can take and no more. But you've got to understand this. If you ask him that question and he shows you something, it's because he loves you. And he's bathing you in love while he speaks correction to you. I was reading this, uh, this is like 25 years ago. I was reading this book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together. 
And it was a little, um, he wrote it in prison. Well, the Nazis had um, imprisoned him because he joined, he was a Christian pastor in Germany and he joined the plot to kill Hitler. And they found out about it and they put him in a prison camp and he was waiting to die. And he became the chaplain in the prison camp. And he began to shepherd and care for these people as they were being killed. And he was one of the last ones to die. So he wrote this practical little book called Life Together. And he had three sins. They were so insignificant. You know, he said three sins that destroy community. Because they had this little community of Christians surviving close proximity within the prison. Three little sins that destroy community. And they were, and I can remember two of them, I can't remember the third. But one of them was um, not listening very well. Oh, big deal. I don't listen well ever. The second one was not being willing to drop what you're doing and help somebody in the middle of something you want to do. This is a sin. Like, big deal. And then there was the third one, I can't remember, but it was some other thing I was obviously guilty of. All three. I mean, come on, who in this room isn't guilty? Like, do you all just listen perfectly? Are you all just willing to drop what you're doing in the middle of something that's distracting you to help somebody else? And the third one was like equally cheesy. Like, you've got to be kidding. These are, these are sins. You've got to be kidding me. So I'm reading this book, and I read the book, and what I'm about to tell you, I wasn't going to tell you, because you'll think I'm mentally ill, but I'm going to tell you. Because you already think I'm mentally ill. So we might as well pour fuel on the fire, right? Okay, so I read this little book, and I set it down beside the bed, and my first wife is there asleep, hating me. She's asleep, but she's hating me. So um, I just know. I just You know these things. Men, men know these things. So... So I set the book down, and, I, and, I, and I'm going to nod off to sleep, and I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't listen very well. Shrug, so what? I think, yeah, I hate it when people interrupt me in the middle of something and ask for help. Roll over, I'm asleep. Yeah, I don't, I don't listen very well. Yeah, I, I never, I hate it when people interrupt me. Go back to sleep. And this thought starts running yeah, I do those two things. Actually, it was three. I can't remember. I do that all the time. Go to sleep. Can't go to sleep. Do that. I do that all the time. Gosh, I do that all the time. Oh, man. This isn't good. It's not good. I need to pray. Yeah, I'll go into the back room and I'll pray. So I go into the back room. I get down on the floor and I'm praying. I say, God, I'm really sorry. I do this all the time. This is hard to describe, okay? This has never happened before in my life. This growing sense of this sin gets stronger and stronger and stronger until I'm bent over the ottoman, in the prayer position, bent over the ottoman, and I'm... Just try to accept this, okay? Because this is what happened. I'm calling out and begging for Jesus to give me to Satan, to send me to hell. You don't make that up. I mean, that's twisted. Okay, I said genuinely messed up. And I am calling, I, the, the, 
these little sins have become so real to me that I'm calling out, begging Jesus to send me to Satan to hell for what I've done, which is nothing. You understand? I mean, they're petty little sins. The conviction is so overwhelming. It's like, this is crazy. And I'm passionately calling out for justice against myself and for condemnation to go to hell. And this lasts for about 15 minutes. And it's absolutely agonizing. And then instantly, I mean, like flip a switch, it's over. And I'm in the ottoman staring at the floor, tears all, oh, snot and tears all over the place. Well, you know what it's like when you're just weeping your guts out. And I'm looking at the floor and I get this crazy sensation that Jesus is standing over my right shoulder looking at me. It's just bizarre. Like, I'm like, I get this sense like he's right there. He's in the room. He's standing over me, looking down at me. I was so scared. You think, won't it be nice to see Jesus? I was certain if I turned my head and looked over my shoulder and saw him, I would die. It scared me to death. Not, shame, not like guilt of punishment or something, but he's here in the room. He's like here in the room. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm crouched there for like another probably 15 minutes unable to move with the sense that he's standing right behind me and then gone, gone. And I, and I sit up and I think, what was, what was that? What, what, what just happened? And you know how your mind can do scenarios really fast? I'm running food poisoning. No, really, I'm doing all the, I'm thinking, okay, food poisoning. Um, what did I eat? Is my stomach upset? No, no. Then I'm thinking LSD flashback. <laughs> I did. I thought, okay, a hallucination, LSD flashback. Um, only did it a couple times. It was years ago. Haven't had one since. It didn't, I didn't have hallucinations. It was nothing auditory. I, I, it wasn't like that. No, it's not that. Mental illness. Mental illness. That's it. I've had a, a disassociating. I've had a psychotic breakdown. I'm crazy. I'm hallucinating the whole thing. I'm crazy. And then I think to myself, this is, this is one of the realest things that's ever happened to me. And I'm sitting here reasoning it, analyzing the experience, trying to figure out what it was. I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. And then this light comes on. Jesus was here. I visited you. Oh, man. I was just like, I'm done. I just, this love, as I realized he'd come, this thing, this love hit me like from the back and came inside of me and it just exploded. And I fell back against the wall and I just cried for joy for another 20 minutes. It was overwhelming, the love of God. Absolutely overwhelming. And then it ended just like that. And I sat there against the wall and I thought, this is the most wonderful thing that has ever happened to me. Why did you do it? Why did you come? Why did you do this? And then I remembered 
for the last three. <laughs> I've been a Christian at that point for about five years. And I never had doubts about God until I went sailing. And I would go sailing and it would be at night. And there would be no light around. And the sky would be like full of stars. Perfect from horizon to horizon in the middle of the night on the deck of the boat. And in those moments, in fact, I just had them in the summer, I would look up and I would think, it's impossible. No God can be big enough to encompass all this. If you were just the God of my neighborhood, if you were just the God of my country, if you're just the God of this world or even the solar system, I can get it, but I can't get it that you're this big. And I would have these deep doubts that he existed because he can't be that big. That was going on, and at the same time, I was noticing a lot of pride in myself. And for the two and a half months that preceded this experience, I'd been praying, God, please deal with my pride. Please deal with my pride. Find a way to deal with my pride. I can't. It just keeps coming up. I'm sitting in the back room, leaning against the wall, thinking, why did you come? Why did you come? Why did you do this? And then he shows me the scene on the boat with the sky. And he reminds me, you've been asking me for the last couple of months to deal with your pride. How proud do you feel now? Because I saw. I saw my sin. And it sickened me. And you visited me. And I will never doubt your existence again. And I never have. Look, there's two ways to exegete this. You can say, wow, you're really a special Christian. Or you can say, you're so screwed up, you had to do something like that to fix your pride. I'm going with number two. And your doubts are so deep, I had to do something like that to convince you I'm real. He will come in proportion to your need if you are willing to let him do it. But the willing to let him do it is the hard part. Trusting him with the result. Do you get it? Let's pray. Jesus, I'm just thinking that the worst thing that could happen is to try to manufacture an experience of repentance by your Holy Spirit. That's so, so dangerous. But the flip side is to not care to do anything about it. And that's callous. We get jaded. Father, I would ask you to help us to have the courage to be honest with you about our need to see our sin. Especially in those key places where our sin is really ruining our lives and somebody else's too. God, give us the courage just to say, tell me the truth or show me enough of the truth. Show me what I need to see. But God, help us to trust you that as you reveal sin, it's only for the purpose of healing, never for the purpose of punishment. Lord, I pray that you would cement for us the equal sign 
between the knowledge of our sin and the knowledge and experience of your love, that we would never forget that equation. So no matter which side of that equation we're focusing on, we still see the other. I believe the Lord is saying to some of us, I want your invitation. I'm open to receiving your invitation to do a deeper work. But I'm not going to do it without your invitation. Right now there's a number of people and he's showing you... um, couple of you just had pictures in your mind of conversations with someone and and your what's the word your cold heartedness you just felt your cold heartedness in that relationship with that person it's a wall of judgment and unforgiveness and the Lord's showing that to several people right now There's a number more that are seeing, again, these practical things he's calling you to change. But right now, there's more to do with attitudes than there is with concrete actions. He's revealing in your hearts right now attitudes that need to change. They're only present in you because there's a lack of love. You haven't experienced enough of his love to have these things washed out. And he needs your invitation to love you more and to show you more and to heal you more and to grow you more. He needs your trust. He wants your trust. He's saying, trust me. 